Welcome to the Pete Space. Palette Life Sciences, sponsor of this podcast, is committed to bringing educational tools such as the Pete Space for sharing best practices and compelling conversation across a wide variety of pediatric urology and VUR topics. The content is solely the opinion of Dr. Dan Brennan, general pediatrician of Sansum Clinic in Santa Barbara, California. This will be the first episode of our series on bowel and bladder dysfunction. I'm Cynthia Hanna, and today I will be talking with Dr. Brennan about his approach to BBD identification and treatment, as well as how his practice has been affected by COVID-19. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Brennan. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I would really like to thank Palette Life Sciences for the chance to talk today. So as we know, pediatricians see a wide array of issues. You see sick children, you do well child checkups, immunizations. And I know from being a parent and having worked with pediatricians as a registered nurse, parents have lots of concerns and loads of questions when it comes to their children. And pediatricians are the first people we turn to for answers. Unfortunately, children don't come home from the hospital with instruction manuals. So we depend on your expertise and guidance. So Dr. Brennan, how is your practice dealing with our present environment? That is a really great question. Thank you for asking it. As you might imagine, Life as a general pediatrician has changed significantly uh, since March of 2020. We first started to get some cases in our state in early March, and my instinct was to immediately reach out to a bunch of my medical school and residency colleagues, and we immediately started to communicate by group text and private social media groups and Zoom meetings. And in this way, we were able to share our experiences and put together what we thought were best practices. And these ideas and best practices were changing by the day. Our priorities the whole way through have been to keep our patients, our office staffs, and other physicians safe while we continue our best to provide continuity and well-baby care, answer the COVID questions to the best of our abilities, take care of illness and injuries, and most importantly, keeping our pediatric patients up to date on their vaccines. And so one of the big struggles was we were facing a lack of the personal protective equipment and enough office cleaning supplies early on. And so we were forced to pivot quickly to telehealth which was really a brand new experience for all of us. And to be honest, I was quite a big skeptic of telehealth until I was really forced into making it work. After talking to some friends who had been doing it for a while and figuring out the logistics of my workstation, how to communicate to my patients what they would want to bring into the, the meeting, things like height and weight and any other vitals that they wanted to share with me, I definitely had to change my approach to a medical visit. And at this point, I've actually concluded that telehealth is the modern version of the old-fashioned house call. Picture the Norman Rockwell paintings. And instead of using my black little bag, I find that I'm using my black little cell phone to treat patients from the comfort and safety of their living rooms. And at this point, I feel like I can treat any patient for really anything at any time in any location, which has been very liberating. So to tell you a little bit about how things have changed a little bit, my approach to well checks has really changed. I used to feel like the exam was such an important part, but as I really started to break down my visits, I realized that the main goals of a well check are to make sure that my patient is growing and developing normally, that I'm able to answer questions for families, and most importantly, you know, keeping them up to date on their vaccines. And so for these reasons, I think telehealth works a lot better than I thought that it would. It just has forced me to really think outside the box. So one of my favorite examples of this is that we were struggling to figure out how to weigh our babies. And so we looked into having obstetricians reach out to their patients and have them 
order scales on Amazon. And, and then that started to become kind of a cumbersome process. But I had one family pulled out a kitchen scale and a cookie sheet and they hit the tear button and they put their newborn on and we got weights down to the ounces or the grams, however, you know, you wanted to measure it. And we could literally, you know, communicate every day or every other day with this process. And so, you know, up until the kids outgrow the kitchen scale, it winds up being a really creative suggestion. That's amazing. So is bowel and bladder disorder, when we say that, we talk about that, is that something you see in your practice very often? It is. And, you know, I'll admit that when you first invited me to do a talk on BBD or bowel and bladder dysfunction, I had to look up what it meant. I, I had heard of it, but I wasn't sure exactly how that fit into my practice. And after reading just a couple of articles, I realized that the umbrella of BBD really encompasses what I do all day and every day before the pandemic, and probably even more so now, given all the stresses that our kids are under. So, you know, in, in my world, a parent doesn't usually come in and, and say my child has BBD, but rather these are coming from innocent questions where, you know, a, a mom wants to know if her child is making too many or too few trips to the bathroom or is letting me know that it's painful when she urinates, she's peeing a lot, she's having urgency, some leakage or accidents, or maybe a message is coming in from a preschool teacher that their student is having some poop accidents or doing the potty dance. And so more often than not, these are sort of innocent questions that start off slowly, but then become much longer conversations. The only time that it's really hard for me is, is when they become a, a doorknob question. A doorknob question is when I'm wrapping up a visit saying goodbye, and I'm just about to grab the doorknob and I hear someone say, Oh, Dr. B, I just thought of one more question. And uh, if it turns out to be, you know, something about a bowel or bladder topic, it usually requires that I sit down again, and, and we spend some some serious time going through some history. Is there a certain age or gender that this presents itself? At? That's a, a great question. I, I think, you know, looking at the pediatric literature, you know, I, I tend to find things that say that we can start to talk about bowel and bladder dysfunction once a child is age four and has been having some symptoms for six months or longer after they finish toilet training. But I'll be honest, in, in my experience, these issues happen at a, at a much earlier age. And so for me, the sooner that we can identify and intervene, the better. And then in terms of gender, I would say anecdotally, you know, the girls tend to outnumber the boys when it comes to the bladder issues. There's a few exceptions to this. And, and some of the younger boys tend to sometimes have more uh, daytime urinary frequency, but that usually resolves and isn't necessarily a, a, a long-term issue. Well, I know potty training is is super stressful and it can be confusing, like when to start potty training, etc. So how does a parent know if there's a true issue versus like digression from potty training? Like say you have a stubborn toddler. Really great question. And th this comes up quite a bit. And so I think for me, this really depends on the history. You know, is this something that just started, has been going on for a couple of days or, you know, have we been pretty good with, with potty training and continence and then all of a sudden we start having some accidents or has this been going on for many months where we have a cycle where we're, you know, not having accidents and then we're having accidents. And so to me, that history is really the, the key way to answer that question. So you've identified that there's an issue. So what is your approach to BBD? So as I alluded to, for me, that the, it's all in the history. A good history can really point me to a diagnosis, usually without even 
any tests or studies, I have a pretty good idea of, of what's going on. So, you know, I will usually start with some open-ended questions. I'll give you some examples. Usually I'll just start off with something simple like, you know, can you tell me what has you concerned today? And how long have you been noticing these symptoms? And then maybe we'll move on to some more targeted questions. When did Olivia first start potty training? When did she accomplish potty training? Is this happening at school and at home? Is it happening in the day and the night? Can you tell me more about urination patterns. How many times does Johnny get up to pee? Is he distracted by the TV or video games and not wanting to get up and go? How often does he have a bowel movement? I ask parents to describe them for me, how long it takes them to finish up in the bathroom, you know, and then my favorite answer to some of these questions when I ask is that the toddler that'll say that their piece feels spicy, which I think is really a, a great way of describing, you know, painful urination or dysuria. And then lastly, I'll follow up with just some questions to help me figure out if there's something that's more serious going on. And usually that's asking if there's been a fever, if there's previous history of urinary tract or kidney infections, you know, could there, we be dealing with diabetes? Is there a lot of drinking water going on too? And then what's the family history? And, and usually once we get through the history part, I have a good idea what's going on. I move on to my exam and the exam, sometimes I'll feel a little bit of fullness in the left lower part of the, the abdomen. If, if I can feel sometimes just some really full loops of bowel that are filled with poop, that's usually a pretty good indication, but not always easy to figure out. Sometimes when I press on a belly, it'll be a little bit tender. If there's a bladder infection or if I tap the lower back, I'll get a sense that maybe there's something going on with the kidney and that helps with some of the older kids. And then on to evaluation, if I can get a, a urinalysis from a urine sample, that that's sometimes helpful. If I'm looking for infection, I'll be looking for leukocytes and nitrites on the UA. If you know I see ketones or glucose, maybe I'm thinking that along with the history of frequent thirst in urination that we have a new onset diabetic and maybe I'll order a follow-up blood sugar test. If I see blood or protein in the urine, sometimes it's a, a clue that there's an underlying kidney disorder. And so once I have that you know, I can talk to a family and kind of see where, where they're at. And occasionally I'll recommend that we do an x-ray of the abdomen. And I like to do just a single plain view, what we call a KUB. And this is helpful to really evaluate like extent of stool that's filling in the intestine. You can see the shadows. And sometimes for those families who aren't really convinced that the underlying issue is that their child has backup or fecal retention, constipation, this can be very helpful, especially if what I'm doing is talking about treatment for constipation and what they came in for was really talking about pee accidents, which are often related, but not always obvious to the parent that's coming in with the, the question. And then a few little other diagnostic things we'll do. Sometimes we'll order an ultrasound of the kidney or a dye study of the bladder called a VCUG if we're dealing with recurrent infections. I, I try and avoid the VCUGs as much as possible just because they're invasive and not fun for the kids or the, the parents. If I'm thinking that maybe there's a neurological cause to the bowel or bladder dysfunction, I might order an MRI, but because these usually require sedation in younger kids, I try to, to hold off on those as much as I can as well. So let's say we have our diagnosis and you know we feel like our, our patient is, is backed up and, and constipated. I try and explain how these things can be related to the symptoms that the parents are concerned about. So if you have an intestine that's full of stool and it's pressing on the bladder, it may lead to just the sensation that you have to pee a lot. And that may be a reason that our patients are feeling like they have to pee all the time. Or 
or sometimes having a lot of stool pressing up against the bladder will lead to the bladder not emptying completely. And so we might wind up with some leakage or frequent urination. And so this really turns out to be the, the mainstay of, of my management. And, you know, the studies show that about 50% of children with these issues will improve with good constipation management and behavioral therapies. I would say in a practice like mine, that's probably more like 80 to 90%. Dr. Brennan, do you have a problem with parent compliance with the regimen? You know, sometimes we do. Let me take a few minutes just to, to go through sort of my typical management and, and you can you kind of see where maybe we'll run into some, some difficulties with compliance. So I like to break this down to, to two phases with parents. The first stage is what I call the clean out phase. And the goal here is to, to gently clear out the intestine, you know, as, as easily as we can. And so I like to start with a product called Miralax, uh, which is a stool softener that has no taste or color or odor, and you can hide it easily in water. And it really helps by attracting water into the intestine, dissolving the hard poop. And it tends to work better if it's taken all at once or if it's taken consistently. So sometimes parents will have difficulty with their kids taking the full eight ounces of water all at once, or they will see that their child has one large poop and feel like they're done, where really maybe this is going to be a one to two week process us to clean everything out. And so compared to some of the, the other treatments that we used to use, like drinking lots of mineral oil or using something called Go Lightly that was delivered through a tube that went down from the nostril into the stomach, I would say the Miralax has really changed how we can approach this. I'm not a huge fan of using enemas. I, I kind of feel like the top-down approach is, is kinder for the, the children. When kids are already having areas down in that region, the last thing they need is to, to have the trauma of an enema. I also don't feel like they really clean out enough to, to really have a significant effect. And then where we run into other problems is really just keeping in contact with our patients. And so, you know, I used to try and bring people back in right after the clearance, the clean out phase. Um, these days I'm doing it, on, you know, with the Zoom session. But by this point, you know, usually the kids are feeling a little bit better. I might have a little bit buy-in from the parents. So if they make it to that point, you know, usually the compliance is a little bit better. And so then we get to phase two, which is the maintenance phase. And here it's pretty simple. You know, I like to cut back on the amount of Miralax so that we can have one or two soft and easy to pass bowel movements each day. I usually will think of soft serve ice cream. I hope that doesn't ruin it for you. If we overshoot and we're a little bit too loose, then we'll back off a little bit on the Miralax. And if we go a day without a bowel movement, sometimes we'll go back to the, the full dose for a day or two. This point, the dietary changes that parents, you know, like to, to use, and I like to use too, the fruits and vegetables, the extra fiber fiber and drinking more water tend to be a little bit more effective just because the intestine's a little bit cleaner and, and you can have a little bit more of an effect. And when it comes to bowel and bladder dysfunction, these symptoms don't come on overnight and we don't fix them overnight. And so it takes time and it may take two or three months for us to really get onto a good maintenance phase, retrain bowel and bladder habits. And it's over this time that a lot of times we'll have parents kind of back off a little bit and, and the compliance becomes an issue. But usually for those kids who have have a significant issue. They'll be back in a matter of about you know a few months, six months, kind of with the same recurrent issues. And then we're really looking to figure out how to approach it from there. And finally, Dr. Brennan, are there any resources out there for patients and children to help deal with this issue? Yeah, the good news is there's a lot of resources. For our practice, our closest pediatric urologist is about 100 miles away. And so we really rely on resources that are put out by the American Academy of Pediatrics through their healthychildren.org website, 
And I'm also a big fan of WebMD when it comes to pediatric advice for, for parents. But there's other times, you know, I'll bring in the help of a local pediatric gastroenterologist who can help us. I am fortunate to have a really amazing adult urologist that is great with kids and families and he's well-trained. And so he sometimes will step in and, and be a help in deciding whether or not we want to send somebody down you know, to go see the, the pediatric urologist. Thank you, Dr. Brennan, for sharing with us your time and expertise. And thanks to our listeners for joining us this week on the Ped Space. We hope you enjoyed Dr. Brennan's perspective. Feel free to share this podcast while we deliver more pediatric urology-focused content in the coming weeks. There are some great resources at dflux.com. And additionally, you can learn more about our company and our products at Palette Life Sciences dot com.